Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. And I am here in the podcast studios with Catherine LeGrave, Karina Quinn, and Sebastian Modak. Say hello, everybody. Hi. Hello. Um, they are all editors for Traveler and all podcast regulars. Well, Karina, you're becoming a regular, I think. I'm working on yeah, it. Yeah, this is, this is your regular podcast. Mm-hmm. Last one was your debut podcast. This is your regular podcast. It just takes two. We're generous. I got upgraded. <laughs> and we are all very, very happy and very, very tired at this moment because you know this by now, beloved public, beloved listening public, but we have a new website and it's very, very, very nice. And we have been working on it very, very hard for a very long time. And everybody in this room, in particular Karina, has been pulling all kinds of long hours and struggling to get everything ready to go. And now it's there. And one of the things that we are doing on our brand new website is we have a whole set of new city guides, which are these really amazing best in class, dare I say that, I dare say that, I've seen the class, we are the best, (laughs) guides to 19 cities, that's our starting point, we've got many more to come, our guides consist of all kinds of content about those cities that is derived from writers that we know and people that we know around the world who know these cities really well. We spent a lot of time getting it right because um, we feel like there's so much information out there and you don't know what to trust and you don't really know what's good and what's not, and um, we are not making the attempt to have everything that's out there, but we are making sure that everything that we have is really great. So one of the cities that uh, we have written about in our city guides was also our reader's favorite city last year in the Reader's Choice Awards, um, favorite city in the world, and that is Tokyo, which is also a city that's, I think, beloved by everybody here, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Yes. We likes the Tokyo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so we thought today, on the occasion of having our new website and our city guides, Tokyo being part of that, we would talk about Tokyo and just kind of do a deep dive and maybe talk about some other parts of Japan as well. It is a great time of year to go there right now. I say that because um, I did last year at this time, went. It's not quite cherry blossom season, but it's going to be cherry blossom season. What? Do we know this year? Is it like... It's usually early first half of April. So it depends on where you are in Japan, right? So March, late March will be sort of when Tokyo will start to see some blooming. And then I think full bloom is at the very end of March or early May. But then like Hokkaido is the middle of May. So it really, it depends. Um, But it's usually only two weeks. And I think cherry blossom season to me before I went during season was... um, Seemed like a gimmick. It seemed like, oh, yeah, that's nice. It's probably like, yeah, sure, there are flowers. It's spring. It's, I'm sure it's very nice. It's so much more than just that. Yeah. It is so pervasive. It's so definitive of what the experience of being in Tokyo at that time of year is like that I, I, I think, how can we characterize that for people? What would you say, Catherine? How would you describe what it's like in cherry blossom season? I don't know. It's just this festival. And and to me, it's kind of wild because like you described, Brad, you think, okay, it's kind of this marketing ploy. But really, this is something that Japanese people have been doing since the 16th century. They've been having these parties underneath the cherry blossom tree um, to celebrate sort of the futility of life, which is (laughs) kind of the reason uh, for the celebration. Because like we said, the season is so short. It's only two weeks roughly and so you go there and there are all these festivals and people are picnicking under the trees the word you used hanami was an actual word that they have for 
just doing that, sitting under the cherry blossom trees, having a picnic with people you love and sort of just celebrating life. And it's such a, a nice thing. I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do. Just getting all the like cherry blossom themed stuff from convenience stores, which you can because everything you go is like cherry, cherry blossom, blossom flavors. And yeah, yeah. Kit totally. Kats. Kit Kats, cherry blossom, Kit like cherry blossom. rice balls. <laughs> I love it. The thing that blew my mind was the cherry blossom trees are absolutely everywhere. And you think of Tokyo, it is an incredibly urban city. I mean, the most urban city in a lot of ways. And yet those trees, they disrupt the visual landscape everywhere mm -hmm. that you go in this beautiful, beautiful sort of precious kind of way. And they're very delicate. There's white, there's pink. It's just, it's, it's really beautiful in the contrast with everything that's around it, whether it's green because it's, you're in a park or whether, you know, it's gray and kind of like urban and, mm -hmm. and concrete. And then what you were describing, Catherine, which is just everybody when they're having lunch during the day at work or at the end of the day is just heading for those trees for the nearest park, for the nearest place where they can just grab some grass or whatever underneath the trees and they're hanging out. It's a very social thing. Mm -hmm. Like people are gathering in little groups. They've got wine or they've got beer or they've got little snacks or whatever. And everybody was doing that. It's like the parks were just full. Yeah, I think it's a great time to go to Japan if you can. Obviously you'd be booking sort of like a last minute trip, but hey, something to plan for next year. So like. March to April is one of the prime seasons, I think, to visit Tokyo. September to November is also good, but generally any time during the summer. Both of you went in... Yeah, I went, I went in the tail end of August into September, so okay. basically around Labor Day weekend. And it was amazing. It was great. It was, it was hot. It gets, <laughs> it gets hot. I think people don't realize that, but it's, you know, like New York City summer hot where the buildings and everything make it even hotter and it's swampy and you know it's all of that but it was great it was fine there wasn't the buzz around the cherry blossom festival but there's always something going on i mean i stayed mostly in this one neighborhood called koenji and when we arrived there was this this dance festival which is like thousands upon thousands of traditional dancers just take over the streets and we didn't even know it was happening but it was a definitely, we got right off the plane into that festival and it was quite the introduction. So I, I feel like it's Tokyo. I mean, there's something for everybody and there's so much going on. You'll find something if you're looking for a festivity of some sort, you'll find something. Just go out your front. I mean, we were talking about this before we started, right? Just sort of walk around. Yeah. And it's, it's a city of such amazing food that you can go anywhere. You know, like I'm planning my trip back to Tokyo. My husband's never been. And that's what he said. Like, I feel like we can just go anywhere yeah. you know yeah we should plan a lot of restaurants but we can also just walk around and I, I made a point of that for my trip we made like one reservation at this one restaurant that has a michelin star called la bombance and it's like very fusion and modern and it was great it was a tasting menu but the rest of the time we kind of made it a point to just wander around and follow our nose and the best piece of advice i got was when in tokyo look up mm -hmm. and keep looking up because a lot of the times a lot of the best little izakayas these little bar restaurants are on the third floor of some random shopping mall and like you don't notice it if you're just looking at the ground level because you're used to looking for restaurants at the ground level so look up yeah I remember that as well. And they're in all kinds of little malls and stuff like that. And you wouldn't ever know from, well, I mean, I think, I think it's fair to say that there are two interesting things about Tokyo and probably a lot of Japan. First of all, it is a little, it can be difficult to parse for an outsider, especially if you don't speak Japanese, the restaurant scene. Some of it's incredibly easy because there are lots and lots of restaurants, unlike a place like New York, 
there are lots and lots of restaurants that do one thing and do it sort of extremely, extremely mm-hmm. well, right? So if you're looking for that thing, it's not that hard to sort of vector in on that. But a lot of the restaurants have sort of folk ways of operating, traditions of operating, and then just very practical things like they won't let walk-ins happen, you know, for example, because they don't order enough product. They only order for the people who have bookings. And if you come and you're not on the list, they're not going to serve you because they don't have enough food for you. If they give you food, they can't give it to somebody who's booked. That was incredibly rational and made a ton of sense, but it's not how (laughs) we do things here. So it's something you may not be aware of. I did not know it till I actually went and somebody explained it to me. But the other thing is that in a way it doesn't matter because while there are some amazing places and certainly you're going to have a list, there are lists that people will give you that we have our list. But the truth of the matter is you can pop in almost anywhere, almost anywhere, and get a decent meal, a decent version of whatever it is. Yeah, and another part of that is just the sheer volume of it too. And I mean, I think, I think there's something of what you were saying too about just the that Japanese cultural kind of tenant of shokunin or whatever, where it's like mastery over a craft, <laughs> and you you're, you're not going to like put something forward unless it's like the the best that you're going to do. But that is also combined with, and I'm about to like drop a lot of numbers here, and they're probably going to be wrong, so that's my <laughs> disclaimer. But this is based on what people have told me, including friends who have started businesses in Japan. But it's incredibly easy to start a business, especially in the hospitality industry in Japan, because it has some of the lowest interest rates in the world mm. for loans. And there's a lot of rules around loan forgiveness and stuff like that. If it's your first loan and within a few years you mm. haven't been able to pay, you get at least like one loan basically forgiven. So that's why you'll find, you'll go into like some tiny little hole in the wall and you'll find a bar with three stools in it because the person who started it like has nothing to lose. They take a loan with like a 1% interest rate and they start and then they get really good at making cocktails and they devote themselves to making these cocktails. And suddenly you're, you have this like, you're in this tiny little bar, they're playing jazz music. It's just you and the bartender and one other person. And I feel like that's something that you only really get in Tokyo. And I think that's a combination between this kind of commitment to mastery and then also these kind of laws around how easy it is to open up a, a noodle shop or, or a bar or whatever else. It's interesting. That goes back to something you said, Brad, though, about not being able to just walk into certain restaurants of a certain caliber. And mm-hmm. someone had to warn me before I went that similarly, like Americans can be a little bit cavalier about making their reservation on time or honoring a reservation. And that because of how they staff and order for their restaurants, like it's incredibly bad form not to deliver and not to be there on time because right. they've they're, they're orchestrated the it to the morning. minute yeah, yeah totally. and to every plate. Totally. Can we talk about the other end of the spectrum? I think you and I have talked about this at ramen places. You know, the ordering another system that people might not be used to oh, is the, like the, the machine, machine, right? Yeah. Did you guys do that? Confused I did. The hell I saw out of them. Yeah. I didn't <laughs> actually do it. I luckily had a Japanese friend with me who kind of walked me through it, but you'd be kind of just... Yeah, you need Pushing like Google in the dark tra- otherwise. Yeah. yeah, some places have menus with the Japanese and then the English translation. So if you held it up next to... So what we're talking about here is a machine that a lot of ramen restaurants have where you go in, you punch out your order, it, it prints a ticket, and at the same time, the kitchen in the back gets that ticket. And then you go find your seat. No interaction with anybody, but it is in Japanese. So if you can't read Japanese, like Seb's saying, he had a friend with him, um, it's a bit difficult. Like I said, a lot of menus have that English, but then you're sort of like holding up a menu next to the machine and, and holding up the line. I, th- um, I think you kind of have to play roulette, though, because yeah. even with a Japanese no, friend, order, even with thing. a Japanese friend, yeah. there's stuff that's lost in translation. Yeah. I was, I'd be like, what's this one? He's like, oh, it's like show you with pork. And I'm like, how about this one? He's like, 
Show, show you with, you with pork. pork. I'm like, well, what's the difference? He's like, oh, it's hard to explain. Yeah. I'm just like, okay, cool, bam. Yeah. Also, it. it's ramen. It's going to be good. It's, it's going to be good. It's ramen. You're well, fine. Yeah, and it's true. It's sort of like, do you want the one that's spicy or the one that's not spicy? <laughs> you know, it's like the variations are not as wide as you might. Do think. you want an egg in it or not? Do you want an egg? Or there was one place that we went to, and again, like total hole in the wall. You know it's good because there's a line mm-hmm. like out on. It was in uh, Ginza, and there was like a line out onto the main street. But the thing was like back down this little alley. It's got like I don't know six seats around uh, the counter, and they have like three things. It's like there's a chicken thing, there's a beef thing, there's a pork thing. It's all ramen. It's like whatever. It, just pick which meat you're into right now, and and it's all just amazingly good. That's yeah. the other thing. And you wait in line for a long time, and everybody around you is you know local more or less. Maybe one or two other people who have caught you know wind of the place. But it actually moves relatively fast because people go in, and they eat at these ramen joints, and it's like there's not a lot of lingering. Yeah. You know, it's just sort of like you go in. You order, they are there, right on top my, of my, you. My friends and I were the only ones having a conversation in yeah. there. Everyone else was, you know, face deep in the bowl of noodles in front of them. It's almost a, like a religious experience, right? <laughs> totally. Like you're there to commune with the food. And you just have this chorus of slurping around yeah. you. Yeah. It's great. But it, that's like so, such Japanese culture in a way, right? Everything is purposeful. Like right. you're going to eat. Right. You're not really going to have this conversation and linger, which I think can be a very... European, maybe sometimes American thing. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, yeah, this, the expectation guy, of a lot of restaurants. So the places that we're talking about, these like hole-in-the-wall places, if you're at a Michelin star place, a little different. Yeah, so there's there's a there's a story behind, like, which kind of gets at this, was the place that I went to that I'm talking about with the ramen vending machine was a place called Saikoro in Nakano. And it was recommended to me by this guy who has a place in Queens that we've written about as the best ramen in New York, and I still stand by that because I think it is. Um, his name's Keizo Shimamoto, and he did something like he ate, I think the number was like 55 bowls of ramen in 21 days or something, where he just went on this like whirlwind tour of Tokyo just How's eating his blood ev- pressure. A lot of, eating yeah. ramen. Yeah. How's that? A lot of sodium. Um, yeah. yeah, and he still eats nothing but ramen, but he was the one who recommended it to me. So I went there, and like he knows all these guys now because he's part of this ramen world. And like the, we, we go to this place, Saikoro, there's one guy behind the counter doing everything, making all the ramen, cleaning the kitchen, everything. It's, you know, eight seats. He's like, he's playing like '90s hip hop, and he's like all dressed in like hip hop garb and stuff. So I like, I was like, hey man, like, do you know Keizo Shimamoto and stuff? He was like, yeah, I know Keizo. I was like, oh, you recommended the place. He was like, cool. I just turned around. He was busy, you know. It was like, this is this is not a place to just like so chat and like make drop. friends. I was trying to like make a connection, you know, like like you would if you were at he's another like, restaurant yeah. or another. Yeah, he's like, cool. So is there What's something you, you need for me? Because yeah. I'm making your ramen right now from your ticket, and that's the end. Yeah, efficiency. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about the neighborhoods? Um, Because Tokyo struck me anyway as a city that is very much defined by neighborhoods. Not Mm -hmm. everyone is as pronounced as the others. But for example, Shinjuku is among the more famous. It's the one that people, well, there are multiple, but I think it's one of the ones that people think of most strongly when they imagine the Tokyo of, of our sort of visual imagination, which is the blinking signs, the sort of like blinked giant, out. Kind giant of, intersections. The Yeah, yeah giant intersections, um, very busy kind of like sides of buildings, very tall buildings. Shinjuku is tall for the most part. There are short parts of it, but... Um, Shinjuku is also the place where like Yakitori Alley exists and and that's sort of like on the other side of the train tracks and it's this teeny tiny very old feeling alley that is in the midst of all that like sort of modernity or whatever it is that very very loud modernity and then there's also the red light district 
Kabukicho, which is a combination like nightlife slash weird sort of party district, you know, lots of strange, you know, kind of after hours bars, not for kids. <laughs> that's, that's one way I did to put not it. Go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did not go because we not had a our family neighborhood. Yeah, we, we had the little one with us. And so that was off limits. But um, but it's, not, it's a reason people go. I won't say the sign that I saw in that neighborhood. Oh. This is the, we can edit this out if it's too racy, but I had a good laugh when I saw a sign advertising a soapy nipple show. There was probably that's, something lost in translation, but maybe not. That's you awfully know? specific. That yeah. might be just yeah. right on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> that could be right on the nose, so to speak. Um, but it's called that because it was like the Kabuki Theater, right? Which is... I imagine own, so. Which is like... So it, it has a history in arts and performance and everything else. It's just, it's evolved. Different its sort way. of performance, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, And then there's also a neighborhood and another part that's really, really low and old and been around forever that's in Shinjuku that is like a bunch of little beer joints, like very tiny little. Oh, it's, it's like Golden Guy. Yeah. Golden yeah. Guy? Those yeah, are Golden like Guy. Tiny little two, three-seater bars yeah. smacked into each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's amazing. Like the, yeah. the graffiti, the architecture, like it's like four or five sort of rows of just endless little bars right. sat right next to each other with a different style. Each one has a different style. They're all very low. And so like right in the middle of this incredibly tall, you know, overwhelming sort of district, you've got this very old like school. beehive kind yeah, of. Yeah, you know. it's like the buildings themselves are old and that thing's been around for a really long time. But the vibe is kind of like, you know, very Lower East Side. You know what totally. I mean? It's like rock and roll is happening, hip hop is happening down there. So, really, really kind of interesting mix of stuff in um, in Shinjuku. And then a really interesting walk to do from Shinjuku is to Harajuku, mm-hmm. uh-huh. um, which is you know like a 15, 20 minute walk, and you kind of pass the famous Shibuya Crossing that you've all seen from Lost in Translation. Um, <laughs> that subway map is a sight to be seen oh, too. Totally. <laughs> I mean, everyone does this, I, and I did it too, but you post up at the Starbucks, which is like four floors up, right above Shibuya Crossing, set up your camera for a time lapse right around rush hour, and you just see <laughs> these crowds just overtake this intersection, stop when the light turns red, overtake it again. It's it's pretty wild. It is. And then when you go into Harajuku, it's like a pretty interesting transition because you go from this kind of buzzing Blade Runner type atmosphere into what is kind of like the shopping fashion district mm-hmm. of Tokyo. It's where you see the really crazy, I mean, to us, crazy outfits, like the next yeah. generation of fashion people in saran wrap and, and whatever else. And then on, then right alongside that are all these kind of hip, modern, boutique fashion stores and stuff, which is like fun to look at, even though you can't afford anything that's on offer. So it's an interesting contrast. The other thing that you can do in Harajuku if you come down the Meijijo Temple is also not far from there, like kind of like at the top of the neighborhood. So you can come at it from that direction as well. But there's a, a sort of like, if you're into architecture at all, all of the big design houses, uh, Vuitton, Gucci, Max Mara, the Italian houses, they all have these really amazing buildings there. And so if you walk through Harajuku and you kind of go, like you have to go two, three blocks kind of in, but it actually starts with that mall that's kind of like right up at the top of the of the neighborhood as you're working your way in, which has this very cool entrance. I can't remember who designed it, but mm. um, for the next, you know, I don't know, four, five, eight blocks, you're just passing one right after another of these really amazing buildings, some of which were designed by really important, famous architects, but all of which are just fascinating takes and and 
Another thing that was sort of surprising and interesting to me was that it's not the only neighborhood where that's happening because in Ginza, that's also happening. You also have these really amazing, from some of the same, you know, companies have buildings in Ginza, which is a different neighborhood. It's a shopping neighborhood. It's a, it's kind also of very like, like upscale, very upscale. Yeah. It's like our Madison Avenue or Fifth Avenue or something like that. Um, whereas Harajuku feels more like Soho, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of like the vibe totally. and like, you yeah. know. But you also find very different, but equally kind of like intense architecture, you know? And it's like, it's not something that you even see that much in New York. There are very few of these big houses, all of which have one or two stores here in New York. But the investment that they make in architecture there and doing really interesting architecture, doing really kind of like forward-looking experimental, you know, framing structures and things like that. And that's been going on for decades. So it's really a treasure trove if you are into architecture at all, Um, many more than just these neighborhoods and lots of other types of architecture, too. But I was completely blown away by that. And the buildings themselves are really impressive. They're very, very cool. You know, you're not going to like everything about every one of them, but it's fascinating to do that walk. Yeah, this is another case of just sort of walking around the neighborhood that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Before I went, you know, people had warned me how big it was and how neighborhood specific it was. But I found getting around not challenging at all. And I felt like I could explore quite a bit, even for the large size of the city. And actually, this is an interesting point. What What I was surprised about, especially from what I had heard, was with the subway, how everything is in Japanese and English now. And apparently that wasn't the case even fairly recently, but in preparation for the Olympics, they've changed a lot of the signage. They have the voiceovers both in Japanese and English, and it's become a lot more accessible. So it was like, I was expecting to be pulling out my Google Translate every five minutes, but I found it very easy to navigate just by looking at signs. Yeah, you could cover a lot of ground and get to those neighborhoods. That's something that you don't really have to plan for when you're in Tokyo, but I feel like something that people do have to plan for, this was my transition, is the fish market, which is like one of the big popular things that I feel like people ask about a lot and I know Brad I think you went it's moved yeah it's gonna move it's gonna move in October I Um, I went but I didn't go for the tuna auction I just went at like seven in the morning instead of five in the morning or whatever yeah five in the morning is when it starts right so if you want to go you have to go and sign up for I think they have 120 a day you have to go and sign up probably at least you're looking at 3 a.m. so hey if you're jet lagged go and sign up at the fish information center. I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. It's <laughs> awesome. Um, when I went like years ago, they didn't have that, but now it's super popular. So I, I, I mean, I, you should do that if you, you know, really want to get the full experience. I still found it worth going to at like, I went at like seven thirty in the morning. Yeah. You still see like the tail end of what they're selling in the actual market. And then the whole area around it, I don't know, there's kind of like a novelty of like eating sea urchin and drinking a beer for breakfast at like seven in the morning you know yeah um and that's kind of the perfect place to do it yeah the earlier the better obviously i think they close officially at three or something yeah but even by like nine they're winding down like most of the fish are gone and you don't want to see the fish they have at 3 (laughs) p.m no that's desperate fish Um, thirsty fish um no, I was going to say my friends and I did the get up at 3.30 in the morning, truck over there. Oh, nice. We were eager beavers. And it, there's one day a week it's closed. And that oh, was the no. day we went. <laughs> but fear not. If that happens to you, if you're not as good of a, if you're as bad of a planner as we were, you can still walk around and see things. And there's still like things happening there. And all of the sushi joints are open. Yeah. So you can still have your 7 a.m. uni and beer go. and sushi for breakfast. But going back to the neighborhoods, there is one neighborhood I have to plug because I wrote a piece about it. But there's this neighborhood called Koenji, which is not far from what we're talking about, Shinjuku and all of that. 
it's like two stops on the train west. I don't know, it just goes to show that, and like, I should have assumed this too, just for the sheer size of Tokyo. And, you know, you could say the same thing about New York or whatever, but that there really is everything in that city. And I kind of discovered that in this neighborhood because I was expecting, you know, what I saw in Shibuya and, and Shinjuku and even, even Harajuku. But this neighborhood of Koenji, even though it's so close to the center of the city, it's all low rise. It's, you know, like hanging telephone wires over the roads. But it has this really tight knit artistic community that has like kept it that way. So like in the 70s, it kind of rose to prominence as like the birthplace of Tokyo punk music, which is a especially vicious type of punk music, if you've ever heard it. <laughs> and it's kind of kept that soul. And it's like not only the new young people who are keeping it that way, it's like the ones who have been there forever. So there are these in Japan, neighborhoods are usually organized by what they call shotengai, which are these shopping streets. So they're like basically community organizations, but they also run like individual kind of shopping rows in a way, and they kind of get together and make these decisions about the community. And the Shotengai and Koenji have been just kind of almost militant about keeping out big chains, keeping things low rise, keeping it weird. And because of that, that just attracts even more creative. So like I went out my first night there and I met all kinds of musicians and artists and and there was no pretension to it. It was just fun. So there's, you know, there's really fun cocktails bars. There's an amazing Okinawan restaurant there. There are people doing weird things like making curry ramen and things like that. You know, just people <laughs> experimenting. Weird, <laughs> and it's a it's just a really fun vibe. So I really do it's kind of off the tourist path unless you're clued into kind of the backpacker bohemian scene. But I would say that it's not just reserved for that. I would really recommend checking it out. Kind of like a local neighborhood? Is that what you'd yeah, say? Yeah, totally. And everyone was extremely welcoming and very proud to be from Koenji. Mm. And that Koenji stayed this cool for so long. I'm fascinated by Akihabara. Yeah. The gaming neighborhood, which to me is just peak Tokyo culture, mm-hmm. that yeah. there's a neighborhood dedicated to it. And all of like the gaming industry is like mm-hmm. based there that's where they're creating stuff people on the streets are dressed in costumes <laughs> as characters from their favorite games and whatnot the buildings actually reflect a lot of that aesthetic with like painted windows and uh-huh. decals and there's a robot restaurant there where oh that's yeah. a famous robot <laughs> that's restaurant a famous yeah. one so, um, yeah which i just think is sort of one of those like only in tokyo nowhere else in the world only in Tokyo. Only All in those Tokyo. theme cafes. They got mm-hmm. hedgehog cafes, the maid cafes, cat. They cat started the cafes. cat cafe. But not just like weird novelty ones either. There's a place in Koenji where it's a book bar. So you can go in and it's all it's just basically filled from floor to ceiling with used books and books for sale. Mm-hmm. And you're just encouraged to like order a cocktail and read what's on offer. Buy it if you want it. And just chill otherwise. So like, the themes ha- can be really cool too. How Williamsburg has not ripped that off is still <laughs> right. beyond me. I'm sure they have. We just haven't. We're, we're not cool enough we to know, know about, about it. it yet. Yeah. Yeah. We're all too something, mm-hmm. something or not something enough <laughs> to know about that. Um, can we talk about where to stay in Tokyo? Because Tokyo, I think, is. I don't know that I would characterize it as a difficult city from an accommodation standpoint. There are some really fantastic hotels, but they are also sort of big hotels, right? It's kind of a big hotel town. And Airbnb is more robust now, but struggled in Tokyo for a long time. Yeah, when, when I was there, I kind of stayed on two ends of the spectrum. I stayed 
for one night um, at a place called the Trunk Hotel, which made our list on our new brand, sparkling new city guides. Yeah, what was that like? It was very cool. It's it's first of all the location's amazing. It's basically basically like more towards Harajuku, but basically between Harajuku and Shinjuku, but not on a crazy busy street. It's very it's in a very pedestrian area. It's full of coffee shops and and clothing stores and things like that. It has a very clear, or at least very intentional aesthetic. Uh, it's f- very modern and and hip, for lack of a better word. But they've created that lobby culture um, where, you know, I'd, I'd go down in the morning and there'd be like, almost as if they had like planted them there. It was too perfect. There'd be like two kind of artists like wearing berets, drinking coffee and having really, really intense discussion in the corner. And then on another table, there was a group that had a kind of a roll of architectural plans out that they were pouring <laughs> over. It was, it was, it was just too good. You know, it's just a bunch of creatives hanging out in the lobby. Um, you weren't buying it. I was like, hey, this is <laughs> this is too perfect. Uh, but it was it was the service was amazing. It was super comfortable. It is on the higher end of the cost scale. It's also very popular with weddings. They have like a chapel on the roof. And then on the way other end of the spectrum, I stayed at a place in Koenji called the Bed and Art Project. They've just opened a new place in Akibahara, actually, or they're about to open it there. But the original one is two bedrooms in the middle of Koenji each one designed by a different local artist from the neighborhood. Very simple rooms, but the scene is in the bar. The bar was hopping like 24 hours a day, just full of different creative people. Um, and those were real creative? Those, were, those were definitely, I can... Not, I can, not, high, not stunt doubles? <laughs> one of them was my friend, so unless he was in on the joke, like, they were, they were real. He was punking you. <laughs> so, like, and it was, it was definitely less luxurious than Trunk, but so those were kind of two opposite ends of the spectrum, but they were at both at least proof that there's more going on than just the Park Hyatt and the, you know, these, these big name kind of more business oriented hotels. Yeah. And I think this spring we're getting the opening Omo hotels, which is the, the sort of budget brand oh, right. of Hoshinoya. So that's like going to be $150 a night for a double compared to wow. Hoshinoya, yeah, six fifty a night, yeah. you know? And we talked about like Japan does have a lot of these high end hotels, right? Some of the ones we love. I do love the Conrad Tokyo. Mm. I got a little spoiled there, and the Ritz Carlton Tokyo too. Um, you know, that Tokyo has a really incredible offering of luxury hotels if that's your thing, and they do it better than yeah. many other areas in the world. I, I mean, mean, the, the service, service is, is unbelievable. It, yeah, it's. It's it's hard to convey until you actually go through the experience of it. But like you have an assigned attendant, <laughs> like people just appear out of nowhere with something you need before you know to ask for it. <laughs> it is it is pretty incredible. Isn't Muji opening a hotel there, or did they already? I think they are. I'd stay there. Now in our guide, sometimes I just go sit in the Muji store and sit. <laughs> yeah, right. In the beanbag. It makes me feel calm. <laughs> um, but speaking, like I mean, you can experience all ranges of stays. And in our guide, we have a, a Ryokan in Taito, where I also mm. stayed, mm. um, Sadachio, and it was not expensive, but I loved it. It was an urban Ryokan, so punk art on the walls. I was the only Westerner there. They were incredibly hospitable and 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 tried to speak English with me, although. It, it was a loss in translation on both ends. Um, but they had like baths and everything there. And you did the traditional breakfast mm. in a communal room. Um, That's great. Yeah. So you could have that that 
traditionally and that, that classic ro- city. ryokan experience and it's in, it's in the in middle part, of Tokyo. Yeah. yeah, and it's in a part of the city that like I didn't see a lot of other Westerners, although I saw a lot of tourists, Japanese tourists. So it has, you know, it's a historical area. It's a little bit north. I don't know if everyone always gets there. So you can also during a stay. I mean, I recommend going to more than exactly, one place. Yeah. Cool. Where, yeah. where did you stay? Yeah, where did you stay? Uh, we stayed in an Airbnb actually cool. in Shinjuku, um, but I was reading about Airbnb's move into or, or their attempts to move into Tokyo. And it was kind of fascinating because they had to find the right kind of people to sort of partner with in Tokyo, in Japan generally. Well, the, the, that bed and art project that I was talking about, the one with the two rooms, started as a basically an Airbnb mini empire. So it was like a bunch of artists who came together and just started buying places and putting them up on Airbnb and designing them and things like that. And then they were like, wait, we can formalize this into a hotel. So I think it did start with sort of partnering with local people to really make it an institution versus I have an empty room, right? Well, yeah, because it's not something that came easily. I think I think the, at least the piece that I read about this whole process, is, it's not something that came easily within the sort of norms of Japanese culture, right? To share your living space with strangers is was, was a sort of threshold that had to be crossed. And so Airbnb actually went through this process of finding sort of pioneers Mm-hmm. that they could work with who were people who were more socially outgoing, more performative, whatever. And the people that they found, and this was not true for us because now I think it's kind of normalized a little bit and it's much more common, but were people who wanted to actually almost act as hosts and show people around and interact with people. And they looked for these very outgoing folks who were sort of defiant of cultural norms to begin with. Instead right? of being like, pick up the key at the bodega and see another. Yeah, which is what we did. I mean, we just went and it was very, it was all very, the instructions were like amazing and it was all very regular Airbnb, but the sort of first wave in Tokyo, which was the the foray into Japan, was finding these people who were a bit, you know, square peg round hole to begin with. And I thought that was really interesting. Having somebody who could act as a sort of host or guide could actually be really great. It seemed like a really um, synergistic sort of thing that Airbnb was doing this because the people coming kind of needed that and the people doing the hosting um, were sort of into it. So it made for a nice fit and probably made that process a little bit easier. But it was like tiny. What I liked about it is what I like about any time I Airbnb, which is that you get a glimpse into the culture itself and like what people's dwelling places are like. And it was so unbelievably small. I mean, we think our living spaces in New York are small and they are. And this was literally, you know, one room with a hallway, you mm-hmm. know, and 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 I don't think it was a bad apartment in Tokyo. It was like a pretty decent apartment in neighborhood, you know, there was nothing wrong with it. Um, and it was just we were on top of each other, a family of three, you know, just like sharing all kind of elbow space <laughs> and whatever. But, you know, it had a nice little balcony and a great view. And, you know, it was so centrally located, which was the one of the great things about it, that neighborhood is, and the transit system, we've talked about this already, but if you can get a decent location that's close to transit, I mean, the city is really pretty open to you. But yeah, I think I think now Airbnb is more of an option, but I do think it remains still a little bit more of a hotel city, I think, especially for people um, coming from our part of the world. I thought it might be useful. We've talked a lot about food already, but I thought it might be useful just to run down the kind of classics that you should be looking for, like the types of things. Everybody knows sushi, but is there anything we want to tell people about 
you know, the sushi experience they should be looking for when they go to Tokyo or to Japan. So I didn't do the full reserving six months in advance <laughs> for seats at a sushi master thing. I hope I do at some point in my life. I think it's definitely probably worth it uh, to have that. But I also had incredible sushi at a train station in Kanazawa. So like I think the airport guess, sushi is amazing. Yeah. So I think like I, I'd say don't be I'm, I'm sure you guys can talk to like the experience of having that full on omakase experience. But I would say that don't like beat yourself up if you are like me and didn't get your shit together in time to really plan that out. And because you'll have better sushi than you've ever had before in your life at a train station or at a place that you just walk into off the side of the road. So, you know, there's good stuff everywhere. Yeah. And if you didn't plan in advance, one of the things we were talking about it earlier about how Americans have kind of gotten a bad reputation in many ways because they don't show up, they show up late. So a lot of places, a lot of the, the high end places in Tokyo have started saying, OK, we're only going to accept reservations from Japanese speakers. It's very hard to get in touch with them. So if you are staying somewhere with a concierge, ask them to call. Um, if you have a Japanese friend, ask them to call. You know, even if you don't make that sort of six month out reservation, it's your concierge or, or someone at the hotel will know who to call and will be happy to make that call for you. Mm-hmm. I found that helpful. Oh, it's yeah. one of the big advantages of staying at one of the hotels yeah. is that they can and they will do that for you. And it's a huge advantage. And they, they really do deliver. And this is a little bit off topic, but you said this earlier about how useful it can be to have a guide in Tokyo. And I found that a lot of the hotels there have some sort of guide program for depending on how long you're there and what you want to see that they can set you up with very um, different experiences like that. So when it comes to food or something else that you want to go do, um, they really do have that in. Mark Elwood, who's a regular on the podcast and writes for us all the time, um, he recommended a, a food fixer for us oh, for nice. um for Tokyo the guy ghosted on us but (laughs) no but it made a ton of sense like after I went there and saw it it, it's the kind of thing where like it could really be great to have somebody so his job would just be like what you feeling like and you're like oh I want some of this and they're like cool I'll make some calls and set it up and you'll do yeah so it's somebody who knows the local restaurant scene which again like you have to remember you're talking about a gigantic city right that is changing constantly to your point earlier about restaurants opening all the time so sort of what is the hot new thing is something very difficult to stay on top of and it's a real thing in that city you know it's not a myth um there is amazing stuff happening all the time so having somebody who's kind of on top of the scene and can point you to something new and interesting or just great that you might want to go to so there's that and then there's also the knowing the ins and outs of the system knowing the mores and the norms and being able to navigate you through that stuff calling for you being able to make your reservations for you in japanese being able to to know which restaurants need what kind of tlc or whatever and so it can be helpful from that perspective as well you know like i said we we didn't actually get to work with the guy but once i saw how things were sort of playing out it it's the kind of thing where i would try to do it again if i could i had a similar situation it worked yeah, I she mean, I was going to put this number out here, and it's there's contesting numbers on this, but I did read somewhere that there are 30,000 eating establishments in New York City, and there are 300,000 in Tokyo. Yeah, I wow. believe it. So it can be obviously pretty dizzying. Yeah. 
and you're at a scale where it's kind of hard to tell when a city is as big as New York or Tokyo, but I think Tokyo is probably another 4 million people, 3, 4 million people than New York. So it's a lot more people, but it's the thing we were talking about earlier. There's just something everywhere. It's denser. And, and, and it goes of, vertical. And know? it goes vertical, you know, on the second floor, on the third floor. It's 3D. Floor, there's yeah. You know? What other types of things? We talked about ramen. Any particular ramen tips that we could give to people? I mean, we talked about the ordering system, right? If it's a line, there's always a, a don't be discouraged by the line, right? I think a lot of people see the line. Um, it moves are, quick. It moves very quickly, yeah. right? Um, and uh, most people are probably on already know this, but slurping is the way to go. Slurping is the way to go. And even like, look at our gallery. We have, it's not just enough for these places to say we specialize in ramen. It's we specialize in duck ramen. Right. Yeah. We specialize in spicy ramen. Right. So get a sense really of, of what you want. I mean, there are, there are enough of those places that have a little bit of everything, but I think when you go to these places and try the specialties, like there's one place, um, Fukumaru, I think that's all about duck. That's awesome. Everything duck, duck oil, duck breast, duck broth. I'm so excited. Just open, so very excited. If you don't like duck, you're rather stuck. I know. <laughs> oh, oh. That's, that was a faulty towers yeah. joke. <laughs> Everyone out there. When Catherine and I were talking about the Tokyo Guide, uh, she had all this great intel like that, where she was like, "Oh, this one's really good for this type of ramen, and this one's really good for this type of ramen." And I was like, "They don't all offer all Everything. the types." <laughs> I'm like, "It's not like New York where they just mash it together." But that's fun. That could that could go into some planning too. So you can try them all out. That's right. You know? I, I can I feel beat like his record: fifty-five ramen. What is it? <laughs> right, fifty-five in bowls of ramen days. in twenty-two days or something. Uh, this yeah. is a this is a question I have about dining there, which I I should know the answer after having been there, but I don't. Um, I'm a lefty and I'm horrific with chopsticks. I'm oh. just truly terrible. Um, I think you are SOL in a lot of places. Yeah. So is there a workaround? What do you do? I don't know. I've never had, like with I've ramen, never had to face to, that situation. Like, try and sit on a person. corner away from someone else. All right. Yeah. You can't ask. Can't ask. Okay. Just I don't know if they're your... going to give you a fork in a ramen place. I just yeah, no. bring I don't your think own they fork. I guess. Bring I don't your think own they fork. do. I, I was too embarrassed. I just you I can would bring eat one like of those. five. You could bring your own. You could bring your own picnic set. You know. Bring your I'm own not going to recommend that. Be that person. No, I just like everyone else would go through a full bowl of ramen and I would be on like bite number five and I would be like, oh, so we're done. Okay, got it. Chopsticks down. No. Watching like a serious ramen aficionado eat a bowl of ramen is just like transfixing. Because yeah. they can destroy that thing in like one minute, 30 seconds. Yeah, no, noise isn't bad. Yeah. Uh, another food, which you were telling me about, yakitori, right? Yeah. 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 Yakitori, I think it's worth going to a place that does the full, you know, 12 course yakitori meal. Really? Um, yes. You did that? <laughs> it's a lot yeah. of grilled meat, friend. <laughs> it was that amazing. Was and you'd be surprised at, if you go to the right place, this uh, surprised how different chicken can taste depending on how you know what part of the chicken it is and mm -hmm. they do everything i ate chicken uterus it was actually maybe the best course to be honest it was revelatory i didn't see that coming yeah, yeah. it was delicious do um, we have to bleep that <laughs> <laughs> if you want me to go into detail of what it looks like you might have to bleep it but it's pretty it's pretty graphic looking but it's um it's one of the tastier things i've ever had in my life i think and so they do that everything from that to like crispy chicken skin to the straight ahead kind of chicken breast that you get when you order yakitori at a restaurant anywhere else um to different parts of the, the leg to i mean it's amazing skin did you say skin i said skin yeah. yeah um and and uterus who knew 
I mean, that does sound great. I would also, I would recommend, you know, as just an experience, the Yakitori Alley in Shinjuku. Like, it's mm. very low stress. You just kind of go in there. There's there's tons and tons of them, and it's basically just like beer and barbecue, kind of very quick. It's a, you know, locals kind of place, although obviously tourists have discovered it for sure. But you go in there, and it's just people popping in for a couple of beers and some some meat off the grill. And it's amazing, you know, because, again, it's so well done. It's so simple, but it's so well done. Um, and I also just think that that alley is really cool and that that couple of blocks or two, three blocks, whatever it is, where all of those restaurants have clustered. Um, it's just it's just a really cool thing to see. It's a vision into a different, you know, era. Um, but, yeah, Japan. the place I was talking about is called Ibisu Imaya Sohonten. So it's in Ibisu, which is kind of another kind of upscale but also more residentially neighborhood. And make sure when you order that course, you tell them you want that chicken uterus because it's incredible. Another one of my favorite dishes, which is not as popular, I think, with U.S. visitors, is Japanese curry. I mm, love it. I love Japanese so much. Curry. How does yeah. that yeah. Yeah. What what, to, I mean, what distinguishes it's it? It's really hard to describe. It's it has so a very, it has <laughs> yeah. such a like a such a taste to it that it's like I don't know. It's, it's sweeter. It's not like Indian curry. Or no, it's else. not. It's, it's thicker. It's sweeter. Singular taste. Yeah. It has a very distinct smell. I don't know. I'm not describing it. I'm not selling it very well, but yeah. it, because it is very distinct. Seb, help me out here. I, I don't know how to describe it either. I mean, but it's anyway, great. curry, it's great. you can get it with hamburger. You can get it with egg. You can get it with cheese. You can get it with tuna, chicken okay. katsu. Chicken yeah. katsu. So curry, good. Yeah. And anyway, it's, it's so cheap. You know, you'll go and it, it's a similar to the ramen where you'll see um, the machine where you sort of just punch what you right. want. It's very quick. I think what's also great about Tokyo, it's kind of the same as New York is to the U.S., is that you can get regional foods from anywhere, you know, because yeah. it's Tokyo. Everyone descends there. So, like, the place I mentioned earlier, it's called Dachibin in Koenji, which was my introduction to Okinawan cuisine. And it was so different from what I expected, but it was amazing. What was, it was it like? Super heavy, greasy pork. Um, Champuru. Uh, what's that? The green bitter vegetable. Did you have that? Yeah. And then these, <laughs> this, what my friend translated as sea grapes. Yeah. You've had those. It's like a type of seaweed. These kind of like little oh, yeah. circular nodules, and they like explode in your mouth, and it's just like a little blast of salt water. It was amazing. It was an amazing meal, and it was also a really fun environment because everyone who worked there was Okinawan, and just like a little introduction to another part of Japan which you can get because Tokyo is where everyone goes. And that's like another, fa I'm going to just talk about my favorite foods here. Okonomiyake <laughs> is my, my oh, yeah. favorite food, which is pretty much from Osaka. But yeah. you go, you sit on the floor, you fry this savory pancake. Like they bring you all the ingredients and you mix it up. <sighs> so good. I like fish, mayonnaise on it. Guys, yum. I like uh, Japanese breakfast. I mean, I feel like it's <laughs> underrated. It's it. one of my favorite. It makes me so happy. It's like all my it. favorite foods first thing in the morning. What is Japanese breakfast? Typically, I mean, like I like the crispy salmon. You've got a couple of right. different fishes, typically um, preserved, right? Like a lot of, I saw sardines, that sort of stuff thing. Lots of pickles. You could do a little like miso. Usually there's some rice. egg thing going some on. Some egg thing. Not a, no bread. Like it's no. all very protein and vegetable based. And I like that. But like that. the fish and the first thing in the morning, it's genius. I don't know why we it's, don't do it. It's, I know. Like, it makes you feel so good. It's, locks. It's, and it's not. It's, but it's not cured. It's more yeah. like poached. And you're not eating it on like a giant, like a thick piece of starch either. Right. You know, it's exactly. like there's there's something about the Japanese breakfast that you get at like a ryokan that just you don't feel like like mm. you need to go back to sleep. You know, like, like like really we do mean. after a brunch. It's just very like gets you up. You know, gets you moving. Yeah. 
But Seb, you said something about all the different types of cuisine you can have there. And then Brad and I were talking about this the other day about the you know the execution level is so good in in Japan that like Italian food is having a moment in Tokyo right now. You can yeah. have some really oh, yeah. incredible. Italian food. And what did you say, Brad? You said something like they didn't reinvent it. They just they're actually drilling it down to the basics and then just executing well, it perfectly. They, yeah, they sort of have. Again, it's this this professionalism of execution. Right. And and what they'll shokunin. do is what's it, what's the word? <laughs> I'm just doing it because shokunin. Shokunin. And I didn't know the word when I was there, but it's evident in kind of like everything that you see. Right. You were talking about the service, of the hotel. It's like. Whatever the protocol for service at a hotel, I'm not sure that they invented it. Maybe somebody else invented it somewhere else. But man, they're going to get it exactly right every single time. And the same thing is true with cooking. So it, this was a couple of years ago, the best pizza restaurant. A lot of people were talking about the fact that the best pizza restaurant in the world was in Japan. And it wasn't because they'd sort of done some super creative like reinvention of pizza. We're now going to have all kinds of cookie toppings on it or whatever. No, it was like they were making margaritas. They were doing like Neapolitan-style pizza. They just were kicking the living shit out of it. And it, they were making it better than any – you know, I mean, we make it pretty good here too. And they, in Naples, they damn well make it pretty good. But they had just kind of like nailed the science, nailed the technique, and they just were knocking it out better than anybody else. And I think that's what you see. The approach is sort of like, okay, let's figure out how this thing is done. Let's study up on it. Let's maybe go to Italy or wherever and sort of learn how to do it. But then we're just going to, the discipline and the rigor with which they're going to execute it is just going to have no mercy. My, my, no... my dad, who's Indian, says that the best like classic North Indian curry kind of cuisine that he's had was in Japan. And I, I really wanted to try it out, but there's also just so much good Japanese food to eat. That yeah. Am I going to have a you know use a meal to have Indian food while I'm in Tokyo? I don't know. Well, if you live there, if you stay there right. for a long period of time, you that you'd, you'd, get, and... you'd get back. If you get that. a moment, yeah, where you're like, I, I just need a break for one one quick bite. Yeah, you, you, to, you have options. Yeah. convenience store. Oh, convenience oh. store. Oh. My favorite thing because the egg sandwiches the are eggs, incredible. Egg salad sandwiches. This is again the level of perfection. This is like, a 7-Eleven we're talking about. Like, the 7-Eleven or family marks is my dream store. But yeah, convenience stores. And like the little, uh, what are they called? Nigiris? Or ni the, the rice? Yeah, the, ri the triangles. The rice triangles. It's yeah. just like the perfect snack. And bonus we tip. We have like Doritos. If you buy a Pasmo or Suica card mm -hmm. to pay Which for you the should. subway, you Which can you use in these convenience stores. Which I think is a great tip to bring up. Is yeah. like For the first two days, we had no idea what we were doing. We were paying, bringing out coins and stuff. Get a Suica card as soon as you arrive. Or and you can pass pay more. with, yeah, Passmore, Suica, or whatever. Yeah. They're basically the same. Can you, you use them on all the lines? Yeah. I remember yeah. You can use them on multiple. So you don't have to okay. think about the transferring. You just tap in and tap out. That's good. I did not know that. And we did the transferring and the, t and the yeah. money, and it was Super very so much challenging. Yeah. And you can buy your egg salad sandwich with it, too. Exactly. So. The, the convenience stores are also really good places for souvenirs and to bring things so back. So good. Totally. Milkies, milk candies. Yep. Did you guys try those? Yep. We got some in our cab ride on the way from the airport to, uh, to into Tokyo. Tokyo and the driver had just like and he was like here have a candy and they were so good they're so good they're like beyond dulce de leche you know I was um, so happy to see those on the treat table. I was like, yes. I, I knew you would. Because it seemed to be a thing everywhere yeah. that we went. So I knew you you would have had totally. to I just want the specialty Kit Kat <laughs> always. You guys I'm going to bring up my son's favorite food, gyoza. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's actually a really good gyoza place um, in uh, there everywhere. Again, it's just like find one, find a busy one. And that's the place to go. But um, near the near the fish market, there's actually a really good with a line out of it. Um, <laughs> gyoza. 
give us a place to go to. Um, did you guys do tonkatsu? Have you guys, are you tonkatsu fans? Oh, yeah. There's a place in our guide called Tonki that I did not get to. We went to a different place that was famous for it, but I didn't feel it was that good. I think a bad tonkatsu place is not going to exist for long. So Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. know, sort of our, our blanket advice. But it, it is true. You know, any place you go for tonkatsu that's still standing is going to be pretty good. Like breaded cutlet. You can get chicken. You can get pork. You can get veal. Not as often. but mm-hmm. It seemed heavy. Bread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seemed heavy. You know, it seemed on the heavier side as compared to a lot of what you eat there. Have Fair a few enough. Beers Not curry. Then, yeah. <laughs> have a few beers and then see how it tastes, you know? Yeah. The curry is heavy? Curry's heavy, yeah. Curry, yeah. okonomiyake. Do, yeah. do we want to spend any time talking? Is it maybe we're, maybe we're nearing the end yeah. here? It's been, it's been a while. So we'll have to do another, yet another sequel <laughs> on getting out of Tokyo. Right. We, yeah. we should. We should. Out of Tokyo. There's Day trips. You can talk Okinawa, about Okinawa. Yes. Kyoto. There's <laughs> like tons and tons and tons of stuff to talk about. Okay. Well, so maybe that's the promise of yet another follow-up podcast from Travelog. So thanks, you guys, for coming in. I know we're all, it's been a long week for all of us, and Seb's still jet-lagged from traipsing around down under. And the rest of us are just really happy to have our new website up, but, man, we need a nap. (laughs) Um, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. Please visit us at cntraveler.com, the brand-new, all-new, beautiful cntraveler.com, best travel website on the Internet. Always was, but now it's even more the best. We have a fantastic Tokyo guide that you can check out that will echo the things that we're talking about and give you a lot more specificity. And we have another new season of Women Who Travel coming up starting this month. So look out for that. If you haven't caught up on the first season, now's the time to do that. Meredith and Lale will be back with a new set of episodes. We are at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram and Twitter. Please do tweet at us. We have received, uh, I have, and Meredith has, and Mark has received all of your tweets about episodes that you want to hear. There are so many that come in. So we got a whole year to work through. Um, We've been working on this redesign, but we're going to get on the scheduling and we're going to get figuring it out um, and get some of that stuff in the pipeline for you. Review us on iTunes and send us feedback. Um, We will respond, and we always do, uh, and we'll try to uh, bring your, your request to life here on the podcast. Catherine, where can folks reach you? I'm on Twitter at KJ LeGrave. Karina? I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Karina Quinn, one word. Seb? I'm at Seb Modak on all the things. And I'm at Bradrick. Have a great weekend, everybody. Check out our new website. It's awesome. 